Welcome to the Compounders Podcast, where we explore the anatomy of public company wealth creation stories. On this show, we invite you to be a fly on the wall for the actual conversations professional investors have with public company CEOs. Through a series of interviews, we will learn about how to create a compounder, a sustainable company whose success builds upon itself by hearing about the real life experiences of public company leaders. I'm your host, Ben Claremont, a partner and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. In these conversations, I interview public company senior executives by posing the exact kind of questions I ask as part of Cove Street's diligence process. By talking to people who operate within a wide variety of industries, we will dig into the holistic aspects of company building that you are not gonna hear anywhere else. Whether you are a professional investor, founder, or someone who is simply interested in business, we think this podcast has something for you. This season of Compounders, The Anatomy of a Multibagger is sponsored by Tegas. Tegas is an innovative and disruptive company that is changing the way professional investors work. For more information, please visit their site at tegas.co. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Coke Street Capital or any affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. My guest on the show today is Sean O'Connor, the CEO of Stonex, a $1.2 billion market cap financial services company that generated over $50 billion in revenue in fiscal year 2020. Sean became the CEO of International Assets Holding Company in 2002 and was a key architect of the 2009 transformational merger with FC Stone that serves as the foundation for what Stonex is today. During his tenure, the company has been quite acquisitive and has added several new product lines and geographies. Currently, Stonex is involved in a number of businesses, including risk management and hedging services, commodity trading, equity securities trading, international payments, and foreign exchange services. Sean has been a steward of a stock that is now three and a half times higher than it was when the FC Stone merger closed, a period of time in which book value per share is up over four times. In this wide ranging discussion, we cover Sean's philosophy on M&A and integrating companies, how StoneX approaches risk management and what the company has learned from prior mistakes, the process of incubating and funding an international payments business, and how financial services companies can distinguish themselves from competitors. For anyone who enjoys conversations about capital allocation and how to build a culture within a company where the people are the main assets, we think this will be an enlightening interview. Before we begin, just a few disclosures to note. First, Cove Street owns StoneX shares, but most importantly, all the music in this podcast was created and composed by Cove Street's founder, Jeff Bronchick. And now, without further ado, here's my conversation with StoneX CEO, Sean O'Connor. So as always, we're going to start this podcast at a pivotal moment in the company's history. So it's the summer of 2009, and not only is the financial world still in a lot of turmoil, but you're also about to merge with FC Stone. From a pure risk management perspective, why in the world was this the right time to take on a transformational merger? 
Well, um, yes, it was a crisis moment. It was a, a crisis in the financial markets. Um, I guess these seem to happen every 10 years from my perspective. I guess we had the dot-com crisis in 2000, 9-11, 2001, then we had 2008-9, and now we have the pandemic. So it feels like every 10 years we hit one of these moments. Um, so the way it worked for us is, um, you know, we were a small growing company, a startup that had been around for, you know, five years or so, um, gathering a bit of momentum. We became really concerned with the financial markets um, early on in 2008. Um, we had some committed bank lines that were rolling over and we weren't sure that the banks would actually roll those lines over. So we got ourselves uh, super liquid. I mean, we still serviced all our clients uh, and in fact, we had a record year but we really kind of husbanded our liquidity resources just because we weren't sure about the banks. In the end, the banks did roll over the lines, um, which meant that we suddenly had, you know, a couple hundred million dollars of committed lines we didn't need. Um, and then we went into the financial crisis and we had been watching FC Stone. We thought it was a very interesting company. Um, it was multiples of our size. Um, and, you know, they ended up with a client loss right around the time of Lehman's, which is somewhat understandable when the markets froze up. And, you know, their market cap just got absolutely destroyed. And, and we were sort of watching from the sidelines. I mean, even though we did well um, and had record results, you know, our stock got impacted as well. But we had all this liquidity and we were looking at this, what we thought was a fantastic franchise that was trading for pennies on the dollar, um, admittedly had had a risk management issue, but a risk management issue probably in the worst financial situation imaginable. And it just seemed something was out of line with all of that. Um, so I remember very clearly in, in February, 2009, um, this was a company that had, FC Stone had IPO'd in 2007, uh, had a market cap of close to $2 billion at one point, um, had about a $70 million customer loss. And in February 2009 was trading with a market cap of $20 million. And, you know, our view was, this is just crazy. And, you know, we should definitely look at this because this is a company we intrigued with. Um, it has a very similar culture to us. Um, it is uh, providing, you know, a high touch um, service to its clients. It's been around for 30, 40 years. It, you know, in its, in its place, it is a franchise and a recognized franchise and, and it has tens of thousands of customers. Um, those are all things when you're starting up a company that are really, really hard to build organically. Um, so we decided to engage um, kind of an interesting story, actually, I, I tried to call the CEO um, and obviously got through to his assistant who apparently refused to give the message to the CEO because she didn't know who I was. So eventually I had to call one of our banks to get introduced to the CEO. Um, they kind of came back to us through their bankers and said, listen, we've got you know 20 or 30 people in the process you guys are way behind everyone else. And, you know, we want letters of indication in sort of two weeks time. And, and we said, fine, um, you know, give us access to the data room, we'll look at it. And, and everything we looked at basically confirmed to us 
that this was an isolated event triggered by, you know, a very extreme market dislocation. And if you could sort of take care of that, what was left behind was a really, really great business, a true franchise, a business that, you know, had been around, you know, for 50 years, great reputation. And you were literally had the potential to buy this business for pennies on the dollar. Um, so, you know, we decided to push forward with that. Um, no one, neither the bank representing them or their council or their bankers sort of knew who the hell we were. So, yeah, that was kind of interesting. And in the end, we put up an offer and we said, listen, you know, let's, let's do a merger. Um, you know, we don't think we're going to make this attractive to your shareholders, taking them out at such a low price for cash, which honestly would have probably been a better transaction for us. But our view was, you know, let's, let's do a stock deal, give your share, shareholders the opportunity of recouping some of their lost value if we can stabilize and move through the crisis. And it still was an incredible financial deal for us. So, you know, it was hard to do a deal then. Uh, I remember going home some nights not knowing whether the banks would open in the morning and whether the ATMs would work. And, you know, I guess it was pretty risky um, from that perspective. But I, you know, our view was we were buying a solid franchise with, you know, tens of thousands of customers. We had long-term relationships with the business and we were literally doing it for pennies on the dollar. I mean, we bought that franchise, even accounting for the write down they took at something like 30% of tangible book value. So, you know, the safety, the margin of safety in the transaction was, was incredible. So, you know, I think even though the environment was uncertain, the financial terms of the transaction, you know, provided that measure of safety we needed. And we were effectively buying dollar bills for 30 cents and we were getting an incredible customer franchise for free. And, you know, that's sort of the way we looked at it. Um, you know, I, I think what happened is the private equity buyers and the other buyers uh, who were circling around at the time just couldn't kind of get over the hump of, you know, let's write a check in the middle of the financial crisis. I mean, I think they all just were sort of paralyzed by analysis, paralyzed by the circumstance and, and so for us, that was our transformational transaction. We bought a business that was, you know, depending on which value point you pick. I mean, if you took the 2007 value, I mean, it was a multi-billion dollar company. But it's certainly a business that in every respect, number of people, number of customers, top line revenue was probably five times our size. Um, and, you know, I think that probably was the turning point for us in terms of our trajectory on a go forward basis. I love that story, especially as a value investor. I appreciate the idea of you know, making a decision under uncertainty, but acting with a large margin of safety. Um, I, I think that's that really speaks to us. Well, just just a little uh, a, a, a little vignette of that deal. So I was actually skiing with my kids in February uh, in Vail when it's they sort of said, "Yes, you know, we'll accept a letter from you." And how about you come and visit the CEO in Kansas City? Because you'd like to meet you, and I was like, "Yeah, okay, I'm I'm all for that." And then I suddenly realized I had no work clothes with me, so all I had were my jeans and my ski jacket. So I literally jumped on a plane, went to Kansas City, and there was this very awkward moment where I walked into the room, and there were sort of four of the management team, five bankers, four lawyers, 
all in suits and here's this guy you know in jeans and a ski jacket with no advisors walking into the room so it was pretty comical actually so anyway that that is a really funny story uh so you know this is something that i often think about in deals where the minnow swallows the whale you know i think it can often be a difficult transition and cultural fit and and stuff like that what how did you you know looking back in hindsight but even a couple of years after the deal how did that work and was there any you know were there any issues where you know the we're we're, we're being swallowed by the minnow and and some of the people are not happy about that and then and then maybe also like how did it work at with Paul Anderson who was a CEO of FC Stone staying on and having two two kind of CEOs in the kitchen at the same time yeah. So, so that was definitely an issue. I mean, you know, FC Stone was a very proud company. They had just IPO two years previously. They were one of the sort of hot IPOs of 2007. They IPO just after the CME IPO'd and, you know, those companies were sort of hot at that time. And, you know, it's, it, it was a sort of fall from grace a little bit. And, you know, I think the people who had worked there had all worked there for a long period of time that all worked for, actually, Paul goes by the name Pete, by the way, but anyway, they'd all worked for Pete Anderson um, for a long time and, and liked him. Um, so I think it was a really tough spot for them, but I, I think they were faced with a situation that even though the company was financially sound and probably could have continued without us investing in them, there was a crisis of confidence, all because this happened inside the, you know, the financial crisis. Had this not happened inside the financial crisis, I think it would have been a different scenario. And they really needed a kind of a white knight in a way. They needed someone to change the page and, and, and sort of give confidence to the clients mainly, right? Not the market so much, but the clients that the company was viable and that their people could stay and continue to transact with the business. So even though people were a little bit, I guess, concerned and frustrated with what had happened, I think there was a realization that even though in some senses you could say we took advantage of the situation, I think we provided them with kind of a lifeline to keep the business going, right? And, and so I think there was definitely a huge amount of appreciation for that because, you know, they were at the point where if customers started leaving them, they would have had sort of a run on the bank situation. And, you know, that would have ended very badly. Um, so I think that was the situation we found ourselves in. But, you know, we were 150 people and they were 600 people. Um, <laughs> you know, their, their business was so much bigger. And our view was to, we took a very um, slow approach in terms of, you know, reforming the company. And there were a lot of things that we wanted to do different, needed to be done differently. And obviously you also in a, in a rapidly changing um, regulatory environment. So, you know, there's a lot of change we had to impose on the business and, and to a certain extent on the culture of the business. But I think we did it in a very collaborative way. We did it in a very phased and soft way because our view was they are bigger than we are. And if we lose the confidence of these people or they get angry about the changes we're making or their view is we don't appreciate their culture and their business and their, their legacy, that's going to be a big problem for us. So, you know, I think we took it in a not passive way, but we, we kind of, we're slow and deliberate with the changes we've made. I think 
since that, you know, we've, we've done probably over 20, 25 acquisitions now. And our view is we've sort of changed how we do that. We've become much more assertive um, when we've taken on acquisitions. These acquisitions have all been smaller, so that's obviously a lot easier. And, you know, typically if the culture starts off as a good fit, you know, even if you are more assertive, it's not traumatic, right? So, um, but certainly with FC Stone, we took it slow. And, and I think there was um, there were some frustrations over time. Um, probably with us imposing more process over the business, more discipline over the business. And then, of course, the, the regulators did the same thing. And, you know, that was um, that was kind of a new environment for a lot of the people at FC Stone because the business, you know, really was very lightly regulated prior to that. I think FC Stone, you know, sort of had minimal process around their business. Um, they weren't unlike any other in the business. And us coming from a banking environment really sort of upped all of that to, you know, try and make the business more institutionalized. So it was a little bit of friction, but I think we got there in the end and, you know, we didn't lose any of the people there um, of any significance. Um, almost everyone is still with us. Um, as to your question with Pete Anderson, um, you know, Pete was great uh, in the whole transaction. I mean, he knew that, um, you know, I was going to be CEO. It was made very clear to him. Um, we definitely wanted him to keep on to help with the transition because he was so much the heart and soul of the business. Um, and I think it was a tough, it, it's always tough when you've been the boss and you're not the boss anymore, right? And, and I think Pete and I worked very well during the transition. Um, we didn't have any real issues. Um, I think Pete added a lot of value. Um, but I think there comes a point where you've been the CEO of a company, you've seen it through a transition, you've placed it in, you know, safe hands for the next um, chapter of expansion, hopefully. Um, and Pete got to that point. And then I think his view was sort of, you know, I'm ready for something different. So, you know, it was very amenable. I mean, you know, we didn't ask him to leave. Um, you know, we would have been happy for him to stay on. But I think his view was, you know, I, I've, I'm comfortable that I've transitioned the company. I've enjoyed being here, but want to do something else. So, you know, and, and we found that same situation with some other acquisitions we've had. We've certainly kept the senior people on. We've normally liked them. We normally think they add value. Um, and, and for the most part, once those transitions have happened, those people normally move on because, you know, if they're not going to be the boss at some point, you know, there are other opportunities for them. So, And now a quick word about our sponsor. Before we started using the Tegas platform in 2017, CoStreet rarely used expert networks to find high value sources to help us better understand the companies we follow. The competitors' offerings were expensive and limited. Tegas changed that dynamic through their innovative business model, allowing firms like ours with a more limited research budget to conduct expert calls at a fraction of the price of others. Tegas then records, transcribes, anonymizes, and posts a transcript to their platform for subscribers to learn from. Every new Tegas customer makes the platform stronger through deeper and richer transcripts, and I've personally seen the growth over the past four years. The Tegas network of experts and platform of previous calls has made the service an indispensable part of our investment process. In fact, we now use the word Tegas as a verb. If you haven't tried Tegas before, I highly recommend going to tegas.co for a free trial and to start Tegasing your research. One thing that you said that really perked my interest was um, you know, your change in strategy as opposed to an acquisition. So obviously INTL, FC Stone was a big, a big um, transaction and, and smaller ones are different, but I'd love to know in terms of integration and centralization, 
versus leaving the businesses alone. I'd love for you to dive a little deeper into how that's changed. Um, I, I think we've always adopted the same fundamental philosophy. And, and I think if you look in our annual report, I think it's written there somewhere. And, and this really started when we were a startup. I mean, you know, 2003, we were a startup with five people, started in a bar in New York City and, and decided to build a financial business. Um, and one of the reasons I think we were able to scale over time from sort of five people to over 3,000 people now is because I think we got the model more or less right. And the model really was, you know, in the financial services, there are a lot of incredibly smart people, um, you know, typically dominated by sort of alpha characters. Um, they all are entrepreneurial in some way. They want to make money. They view themselves that way. And, you know, what we provide is a great platform for those people to come and build their business with us as partners, right? I mean, that's sort of how we think about things. Our job is to control, um, you know, the infrastructure, the risk, and allocate resources. So typically what we do is make sure that, you know, every business head knows the sandpit in which he's playing. He knows exactly where the borders are, how many resources are dedicated to him, what the strategy is, um, what the risk tolerance is, what he has to do if he wants to change any of that. Um, and that is controlled very centrally, right? But the day-to-day -day decisions on how am I going to go execute my business are really up to our business heads. And we give them a fair amount of latitude to do that. We obviously want to make sure that the culture is correct and the strategy is correct, but we're not calling the place, right? So we, we kind of, we setting the field, <laughs> we putting the referees on the field and these guys are the quarterbacks and, you know, they play the game and as long as they follow the rules and, you know, and, and we calling, you know, whether the ball's in or out of bounds, I mean, they, they can continue to build their business. And I think that models work really, really well for us because people get frustrated at bigger organizations when they feel like they don't have the ability to grow their business. Uh, they don't have any say as to how the business should be grown out and they don't feel they're appropriately rewarded when that all happens right, right? So, um, so we've been able to cut through that by making sure people are, are compensated very clearly on their success. And, and the flip side is if their businesses don't do well, they're not gonna make money, right? We don't pay big guarantees, we don't pay big salaries. You know, you, you, we really treat our key people as partners. We, we really delegate the execution of that strategy pretty broadly, but we hold very tight onto risk control, financial control, compliance, all of those things are set at the center with very tight controls around them. And, and I think it's a model that works well for us. That's a good segue to my next question. So this company is involved in a number of different markets, currencies and equities, physical commodities, derivatives, and kind of like how you were uh, highlighting with FC Stone, there's a graveyard full of companies that were active in these businesses and were materially impacted by a customer loss or a bad trade or a so-called rogue trader. So, you know, you, you've touched on this a little bit, but I'd love to know a little more, you know, from a, you know, from a, an internal perspective, you know, what, what is the risk management culture that you've created at, at StoneX? And then when you bring someone on, what is it like to try to inoculate them into that culture and that, you know, kind of risk framework and how hard is that to do? 
Um, that's a great question. And I think it goes to sort of the core of our DNA, really, because we are in the risk business. I mean, you know, we help people manage their risk. We provide access to the financial markets for our clients. But at the end of the day, we assume risk. And, you know, we've got to make sure we manage that risk effectively. So, um, so to answer the question in, in parts, I guess, you know, a lot of people say to us, well, you do all of these things, right? You do FX, you do equities. But at some basic level, you know, those products are all very similar. Someone executes a trade. We've got to make sure the trade settles. We've got to make sure we've got sufficient collateral and that, you know, if the value of the market moves, that the customer has the ability to pay that collateral to us. I mean, so, you know, yes, we got lots of products, but, you know, people think about, well, is FX different to equities, different to futures? The reality is we probably trade a million products, right? We've got a million SKUs in our store, if you want to think it that way. But the process is pretty similar across the board, right, in terms of how we approach it. Um, so I, I don't really sort of buy that, oh, you're in FX and you're in equities, so that makes your business more complicated. I, I don't think it does really, um, because I think the back-end processes are all pretty uniform, okay? Um, so in terms of, of risk, it starts with the culture at the front end of the business, i.e. the revenue producers, the relationship people. And the starting off point for us is, you know, we are here to facilitate customer trades. We're not a proprietary trading firm. Um, we don't take risks because we want to predict which way the market goes and we think we're smart at doing that. We are there purely to facilitate what our customers want to do for us. And we want to get paid by our customers through taking a commission or capturing a bid offer spread by taking that position and trading it out into the market as quickly as we can. And we want to do that consistently and we want to do it over time. And if we do that well, we'll create a long-term annuity stream from each one of those customers. And I think you've got to bring in people who believe that because what we don't want are people who you know, are trying to rip clients off or, or try and make egregious markups. And that happens in our industry, right? And, and we have very been very um, aggressive in making sure that we do not do that. We want to treat our clients fairly. We want our clients to have long-term relationships with us. And our job is to, you know, take a small fee out of our clients effectively for providing that service. So that's where it starts. And, you know, our, our client relationship people need to understand their clients. They need to understand why their clients are doing that business. It's an obvious part of know your, know your customer. And they need to help make sure that the clients know what risks they're taking, because ultimately the clients are taking too much risk. That feeds into our risk indirectly, but we don't want the clients to take risks they're not aware of. So you've got to start off by protecting your client. Ultimately, if you protect your client, you protect the firm, right? So that's kind of how we think about the front office. And, you know, our front office people, um, if a client loses money, it goes against the PL. So they are totally aligned with us in reducing any client charge-offs. Then we go into sort of, I guess, the second and third tier defenses, really making sure that we have people at the center. This is part of the control structure where we carefully analyze every customer and their ability to take on risk and their ability to make margin calls and settle trades. And if we don't feel comfortable um, with that client, we're not gonna take them on. And for every single client, 
we will set an aggregate limit of the amount of transactions a client can have on with us at any point in time. And, and again, this should be protecting the client as much as it's protecting us, right? So if we get that balance right, we should all be on the same page. And interestingly, you know, we've often have clients come back to us and say, this is crazy. Why are you putting a limit on me? And the limit you've put on me is, you know, I want to trade much more than that. I'm a speculator. I'm a trading firm. I want to take more risk. And we often sit down with our risk people, with our clients, and go through with them the scenarios and say, well, hang on, if you really look at these scenarios, are you sure you want to take this risk? I mean, we're telling you not to take it, but you can go do it with someone else potentially. But do you really want to do that? And oftentimes, once we go through that process, people say, actually, you're right. You know, I haven't really thought about how exponential this risk could get. And yeah, you know, you guys have actually helped me out in sort of limiting my appetite in a way and putting some discipline around my business. So we go through that very formal process. Uh, we set limits. Um, we set limits in, in, on our trading desks as, as to how much risk we can take and how quickly we lay the trades off to the market because we don't want to end up just being the other side. Um, we set limits on how much risk each of our clients can take based on their ability to pay margin in, in an extreme situation. And all of that gets distilled down through our risk process. And, you know, it's a lot of work. Um, and I can tell you, this is a big part of the business we had to build, you know, right from the beginning and even more so when we took over FC Stone, because one of the, you know, we talk about that sort of FC Stone transaction as being a trans transformational step for us, and it was. But it was more transformational than just the FC Stone deal. What happened is the regulations of the financial world transformed from that point on, right, after the financial crisis. And, you know, we all had to up our games. And in a, in a certain way, I think the regulators were good at pushing people to really look more fundamentally at their businesses. I think for us, we always did that. Um, but it was a bit frustrating to us that some of our competitors weren't doing that. And we would have these kind of conversations with clients who say, you limiting how much I can trade, but your competitor, I can go there tomorrow and they don't care how much I trade. And that sort of places you at a bit of an economic disadvantage unless you can get that client to accept that as a rational view. And I think what's happened over time is the regulators have sort of forced people to be rational about how they think about risk. And, and But, you know, it's a big enterprise. I mean, we have three, four hundred people one way and another controlling what our clients do, whether it's, you know, through compliance, through the regulatory group, risk group, market risk. So, you know, it's work. It's what we do. And, you know, if you do it, you have to be serious about it. So it starts with culture, but it also ends with just a lot of work and, and, and process verifying that, you know, everyone is doing what they should be doing in the right way. And just like not every one of our investments makes money, you guys have had a couple of incidents over the last few years where you've suffered some losses. I'm interested though, you know, how has the company gotten better or what have you learned from the issues that you had with the coal shipments and then more recently the option sellers issues? Where, where, where do you think that you've been able to use those as, as learning and teaching moments for the company? Yeah, well, I, I think you know about the significant events we've had, but, um, you know, I, th I think we need to make the point that, I mean, this may come across wrong, but we lose money all the time, right? Um, you know, we have charge-offs. When you have 30,000 institutional and commercial clients and 300,000 retail clients, 
we have charge-offs every month from clients, right? Our job is to make sure that those charge-offs are kept to a level that is commensurate with the size of business we are, the profitability of our business, and, you know, shouldn't be more than, say, 1% of our revenue. I mean, that's what we're shooting for. Um, what you're referring to are those isolated events where we had losses much larger than that, right? So, so you know, if we think through those, I think the two losses you mentioned um, fall into two very different categories. The first loss when we are involved in physical coal, I, I would see that as a failure of strategy, right? Um, we, we decided and, you know, we, you know, over the last 20 years, We've expanded, you know, organically and by acquisition into lots of different product verticals. Um, and many of those haven't worked exactly as desired or it's taken us longer than we think to get traction. I don't think we've lost material amounts of money in those strategic initiatives. Um, when we have lost money, it's been incidental to the business and, you know, it hasn't been reported as, as a discrete loss. Um, but, you know, there were years where we were investing five to $10 million a year in costs related to new initiatives. And, you know, some of those new initiatives never actually resulted in, in material business revenues for us. And some did. And I think, you know, our track record over 20 years has been pretty good, but they haven't all been winners, right? So, you know, we've expanded organically and, and through acquisition. And I think that's generally been successful, but not always. Um, I think the issue with the coal was, you know, a, an organic expansion into a new business um, that went badly wrong, right? So that was probably our single biggest strategic miss. Um, I think, as always, when you look at it in the cold light of day after the event, it's always sort of pretty obvious what went wrong. Um, just like, you know, your earlier comment on risk management, if you look at if you look at sort of all the risk management failures, even, you know, the collapse of Bear Stearns and Lehman, it's all the obvious things, right, afterwards, you know, taking too much risk, too much leverage. I mean, you know, it's, it, it's, never, it's never something you didn't know about. It's always, you know, getting the obvious things right. And in the case of coal, I think we just got over our skis a bit. We got involved in a business we really didn't have much institutional knowledge about. We didn't have much knowledge at senior executive level. We trusted a mid-level person who sold us the idea to do this, gave him too much latitude, um, and didn't control the business from the center like we normally do. And, and part of that was this was in Singapore, and there were time zone issues and you know a whole litany of reasons why we did what we did. Um, and in retrospect, we should have stood firm on that. We should have used the formula that works very well for us, which is tight control of risk at the center, you know, delegate, you know, the front end strategy to, to the business person, um, but also make sure we have some institutional knowledge about what we're getting into. And we didn't. So I, I would put that in the category of, you know, a, a sort of strategic misstep um, and probably not our only one, but certainly our largest one over time. Um, the option sellers business, interestingly, is a, you know, it, we, we have raised the issue. We have yet to see how it plays out. We haven't taken any reserves in option sellers yet because that's still going through uh, a legal situation. Um, we feel very strong that strongly 
that that entire situation was sort of a business as usual type event. Um, we, that all of those clients went through our risk process as designed, that in every instance, we took rational decisions around those clients and those clients evidenced their ability to take risk and their net worth. And that was, you know, imminently supportable. Um, and that, you know, according to market norms, people should pay their debits, right? If they take risk and don't perform. And these are all wealthy individuals that attested to us that they were wealthy. Um, so I, you know, have we learned something? Obviously you always learn something from that, but I don't put that situation. I, I don't in any way think there was a failure in terms of how we looked at that business. It happened to be a, you know, a large position that was replicated through 300 individual accounts. But I think there was rational risk taking and controls around that entire process in that business. And, you know, obviously that's a matter that is now being litigated, but I, I don't see that as, you know, a failure in any way. It was an unfortunate event, a, a market black swan that happened that, you know, had a, a pretty large impact. So we'll see. So moving on from risk management and risk mitigation to something a little more positive and and um, you know kind of company building. So you guys have a great international payments business that's been a nice contributor, um, and I believe you incubated internally. Can you talk about what you saw in that market that justified allocating internal resources to growing that business, and, and why is that business so interesting? Well, I think that business is probably. Um an interesting case study for what's happened with our company overall and how the company has changed over the last 15, 20 years. So using payments as an example for that, when, when we started as a startup, um, our view was really to you know, provide a service uh, facilitating client transactions in the financial markets, but really focusing on the niche markets defined as outlier markets that the big players aren't interested in or smaller transactions that just don't get the attention from the big guys. So sort of odd lot trading and things like that, right? So, you know, we didn't, we didn't have a lot of capital. We had no name recognition. So our strategy was, you know, let's go earn our stripes by servicing customers very, very well on the things that don't get looked after, that doesn't get well looked after by the larger players, okay? So when we started thinking about foreign exchange, you know, we immediately came to the view that if you were trading in the non-G20 countries, people weren't that interested really. So if, if you called up JP Morgan and said, I want to exchange $500,000 into Kenyan shilling, I mean, they'd probably hang up the phone on you, right? Because it's just sort of not interested. They want to trade a billion dollars in dollar yen or something, right? So, so that seemed to be kind of a good starting point. And then we sort of went and said, well, who are the clients that have issues exchanging currency in these markets? And it was really NGOs and charities because they tend to put a lot of money into places like Zimbabwe and you know Asia and whatever. So, so we started calling on these folks really on their treasury saying, can we help you? You know, we, we will give you a lot of attention and service. And, and, and we know that that market is very opaque 
and very inefficient. And we think we can do better for you than whoever you're using right now. Um, and that's how the business started. Um, and then eventually, we came to the conclusion that people were viewing us as a payments company because we were actually facilitating all their payments. Um, and, and it was a very hard transition. So just to give you some sense of how that happened, we would go speak to an NGO and they'd say, we want to help you. And they would look at us like we were crazy people, right? They were like, well, you're not a bank. I use one of the big banks, Bank of America, whoever it is. And, you know, they, they handle all my wire transfers. And then we'd say, okay, so where are you sending money? And they'd say, okay, I'm sending $500,000 to Kenya. And we'd say, okay, we'll do this for this amount of money for you. This is how many Kenyan shilling we'll put into your account tomorrow if you trade with us. And we would just wait. And then three days later, the phone would go and the guy would be screaming because his $500,000 trade cost him $50,000 because he got $50,000 less Kenyan shilling than we offered him. And that was sort of the genesis of that business. We went into the local markets. We basically shopped around for efficient exchange rates. And we ended up compressing the transaction costs of pushing money cross-border into accounts. And people started viewing us as sort of a payments channel. And, and in effect, that example, say, with Bank of America, the problem was, wasn't Bank of America making the money? It was the local bank in Kenya that was kind of taking the spread. So the next step for us was to go to Bank of America and say, hey, do you know that the way you are, you, the way you are helping your clients with payments, that NGO you're servicing, do you know your client is being ripped off by $50,000? And then they would say, hang on, that's unacceptable. And by the way, if that ever got out, that would be pretty bad for our franchise. So can you help us? So then we started working with the banks and that whole business has grown from, you know, we are probably the dominant player with NGOs. And now, you know, I think 14 of the top 15 banks in the world use us for payments. So I think that has started. So, you know, if you sort of go back to the beginning, a very niche approach, you know, in, in you know, and we've now become sort of a mainstream player in payments in 175 countries. That's not necessarily what we intended to do when we started, but it's how the business evolved. And on top of that, it started off as a very analog business. It was pieces of paper and getting on the phone and sending faxes. We joined Swift. We built a technology stack on Swift and that became a technology offering. So, you know, in some ways, I do think it's a good example for the whole of what we're doing at StoneX in that we've moved from sort of niche markets to mainstream markets, and we've moved from old school analog into more of a digital sort of offering. And, and I think payments is an excellent example of that. Um, as to sort of the moat around the business, and, you know, there's almost no one on the planet that can efficiently execute cross-border payments in 175 countries. Not one of the large banks can do that. They come to us to fill in the gaps where they can't make the payments. Um, we do it through APIs. It's super, you know, technology oriented, very easy for anyone to plug in. And demonstrably, they're getting a better rate when they do it with us. And, you know, what's frustrating with us a little bit is, you know, if you look at some of these new payment companies that have sort of spac or IPO'd, you know, you've got Wise and Flywire and a whole bunch of them. Almost all of those payment companies have less top line revenue than we have. 
Um, they all make massive losses, and we are very profitable, and they all have very bad unit economics, and a lot of them use us because despite what they say, they don't have the in-country networks that we have. Um, and yes, they all trade at a six to twelve billion dollar valuation. So, yeah, it's sort of very strange. Uh, and that's an interesting kind of segue into something that you know I, I approach a little trepidation, which is cryptocurrency and th and that world. And and I don't, you know, I don't. This isn't about. I'm not trying to get into your thoughts on crypto as a you know asset class, but in terms of looking at threats and opportunities for the payments business or or StoneX as a whole, where from a strategic point of view, what is your current position on on how to handle the growing demand and seem, seemingly a fair amount of love for, for cryptocurrencies and, and, and the potential applications for cross-border tra uh, uh, transactions? So, you know, our, our sort of mandate is to be there to facilitate the transactions our clients want to do, right? And to do them in an efficient, thoughtful, low-risk manner. Um, and we actually do a lot of, I would say, indirect trading in cryptos, right? I mean, the derivatives are listed on the CME. We trade those derivatives all day long. There are crypto exchanges that are public companies and we make markets in those entities. Um, and, you know, our clients want us to do that. So we're very involved in that. What we're not doing is, you know, running sort of physical wallets or trading physical um, Bitcoin, right? I mean, you know, they're Coinbase and a couple of people out there doing that. We don't really see that as something we want to do. Um, you know, I think that's a highly specialized business. Um, I think it's becoming a very crowded marketplace. You know, I still wonder about the efficiency of that whole process. Um, you know, from what I can tell, if you want to turn Bitcoin into cash or cash into Bitcoin, either way, through a wallet, it takes best case seven days and, you know, 7% margin right or brokerage fees so not a really efficient market i mean everyone talks about bitcoin as being this uber efficient super you know low latency payments mechanism i think uh, certainly now it's the reverse of all of that right if something takes seven days to turn into cash and it costs seven percent i'd rather use my credit card right i mean that's a lot easier so so anyway, so we are active in the Bitcoin space. Um, I don't think we are going to become a physical exchange or run wallets anytime soon. Um, and, you know, on the payment side, I, I think, you know, if you think about it, we don't really care if Bitcoin becomes a currency because it's going to become another currency, just like the dollar or the euro. Um, our real value add on our payment side is turning those G7 currencies into local currency that can be spent in the local market. The only time Bitcoin becomes a risk for us is if you can go to Kenya and you can pay your lawyer in a Bitcoin and you can buy a restaurant meal and you can go to Zimbabwe and Brazil and do the same thing, then no one's gonna to need to exchange currency. But I, I'm just not sure that's gonna be in my lifetime, to be honest. I, you know, Maybe I'm denying the inevitable, but I don't think that's gonna happen. Um, but we, we watch closely and, you know, if Bitcoin becomes a medium of exchange between banks and on an institutional basis, there's still a role for us to exchange that Bitcoin into local currency. And we have the best way of doing that. Right. So that's really sort of our value on the payment side. 
that sounds like a pretty rational assessment of, of the both the threats and the opportunities. Yeah. Um, so in financial services in general, there's just a lot of competition and, and some of these, you know, some of the services and products you're offering are, are you know, pretty ubiquitous across the competitors and to some extent commodities. So I'm interested to understand how you think about building a moat within financial services. And if you do build a moat, what is, you know, what, what are the key sources of that? And we talked a little bit about payments, but maybe outside of payments, what, where would you, where would you highlight some, some competitive advantages with, within what you've built at StoneX? Okay. And I, and I think this ties in kind of neatly to your starting off question, which is, you know, sort of the FC Stone moment, which was the financial crisis and, and, and what's happened since. And, you know, I, th- I think for us and for me, sort of being at the coalface in the industry, looking back on it, the last 10, 12 years, there's been massive change to the financial markets and a big shakeup in sort of the playing field, right? So, so let's go through that. So I think what we saw, obviously, is sort of Dodd-Frank got introduced and there was a much more rigid, um, you know, regulatory approach around capital and having sufficient capital to support your business. And everyone had to start thinking a bit differently about that because, you know, to prevent, you know, a repeat of Lehman's and Bear Stearns, people were looking at leverage and was there enough capital to support the business. And, and that impacted us, right? We had to put more capital than we ever had to before. Now, we always ran our businesses sort of commercially, and we always took the view that commercially we needed capital to run our businesses. So it didn't really change that much for us. But I think for a lot of people, it meant more capital was needed, right? In addition, more cost was needed and more infrastructure was needed because you had all the regulations that imposed a lot of process over your business. Again, I think a good thing, but an expensive thing. So what happened as a result of those two things was it became a lot more, you needed a lot more scale to be in business. And if I look back at, the sort of industry and how it's developed and how it's impacted us. Um, What we've seen is massive consolidation of entities that are smaller than us. And again, I think the reason why the FC Stone transaction was so transformational, we maybe didn't even see it at the time, is it gave us enough scale to put us just slightly above that line, right? Where we could invest, we could bring on all the compliance requirements of the process, we had the capital and, and, and we could survive. But a lot of players below us didn't. And there's been massive consolidation. Now, we've been a consolidator of those smaller companies. We've bought 25 of them. Um, a lot of them, we've just acquired their clients or their, or their businesses. And just to give you some metric on that, if you just look at uh, clearing FCMs in the US, the so people who clear derivative markets in the US, Prior to the financial crisis, there were about 250 round numbers, and now they're 60. And more interestingly, the top 20 has stayed absolutely constant because it's all the big banks. It's Bank of America and all of them. So, you know, you've gone from 230 down to 40 in, if you exclude the tier one. So, so we know there's been massive consolidation at the bottom edge, which I, I think has been helpful to us. The reason we have managed to grow our client base by five and 10x over the last 10 or 15 years is because it's been easy for us to pick up clients. I mean, we'd like to think we're super good at it, 
and I, and I think we are good at it, but we also kind of just in a interesting situation where a lot of clients are looking for a bigger broker or a broker that's sustainable or a broker that's public that they can feel confident about. There are not a lot of firms like us that are public, right? So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, we have the banks and the banks have had to reallocate their capital. They've largely sort of got out of the trading business. I mean, the regulators, you know, it's changing a little bit, but the regulators wanted to turn them into loan businesses, effectively loan and deposit institutions. Um, they had to put a lot more capital behind their trading activities. And as that rolled through, we have increasingly, and it is still going on today, see big swaths of clients pushed out of the larger banks. Now, it tends to be their smaller clients because, you know, they are placing minimum revenue, you know, per client, you know, a whole bunch of minimum criteria. And oftentimes the smaller clients just don't, you know, they, they don't carry the freight. So they get pushed out. So we've been picking up a lot of clients from the larger banks. So despite what you say about it being a very competitive industry, I think we've been in really interesting uh, industry dynamics where it's made us, it, it has made it relatively easy to pick up clients. It's hard to get a client if the client's happy where he is and there's no pressure for him to move, right? If a client is being forced to move or he's concerned about where he is currently and he's concerned about where his money's at, it becomes a lot easier to grab that client, particularly if we are offering the same breadth of services that the big banks do. We are seen to be a very credible alternative for people coming out of banks, and we seem to be a big step up for the people who are coming from smaller firms. So, you know, in a lot of ways, the financial crisis changed a lot and it placed a huge burden on businesses. But in a, a lot of ways, that's been to our advantage because we've been able to absorb that cost and, and, and can carry the freight. And I think it's taken us to the next level. So, um, you know, so, so that's sort of one dynamic, um, which I think is interesting. In terms of your question about a moat, we took the view early on that if you think about sort of the, the entire life of a transaction that a client wants to do on an exchange, let's say it's a, a commercial client who's trying to hedge his exposure to copper because he makes air conditioning units or whatever it is, right? Um, there, there are a bunch of different elements of that trade. Um, the first is just getting an execution. Now you can just be a broker and you can just hunt around for the best price for your client and you can charge them a commission to do that. That's, that's one offering. If that's all you're doing, you're then going to have to give that transaction up to a clearing firm who will clear that transaction for the client. And the reason why clearing firms exist, and if you think about it, it's a little bit like an ecosystem, the exchanges sit at the middle, right? And they run the central order book and everything flows through the clearinghouse. But the exchange doesn't want to deal with individuals. They want to deal with regulated entities that have a lot of capital that are effectively guaranteeing their customers' performance to the exchange. So the exchange doesn't have to worry about risk. They delegate that to firms like ours. If you're one of those firms, you are a core part of the market structure and you are occupying valuable real estate that is very hard to get into. And if you can execute and clear, 
you are in a much better position than just an executing firm. Because an executing firm is a middleman. That's all he is, and he is not providing a valued service to the clients because the valuable part of that trade is who's going to clear my trade, where am I leaving my collateral, and you know, am I happy with the standing of that firm, and is the exchange has to be happy with us as well to make that you know that all work right. So we have elected to become you know, a part of the market structure. So we not only trade and execute, but we clear all transactions in every asset class. There's almost no firm of our size who can execute and clear every type of transaction in every market, in every jurisdiction. The only people that can do that are JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and all the big banks. So we have created a tier one, infrastructure for tier two clients, if, if that makes sense. And, and I think the clearing part of the business is a very difficult business to replicate. It requires real capital. It requires significant operational resources. It requires real risk management. It requires connectivity to all the exchanges. It's a very, very hard thing to replicate. Um, I don't think it's valued correctly at the moment. And, and, and maybe clients don't even pay the right margin for that because they don't appreciate it. But we've decided to bundle those services, become part of the market structure. And I think what we have definitely has a moat around it because I think it's very hard to replicate what we have. The question is, you know, have you built a moat around your clients? How easy it is, is it for your clients to move away from you if you change pricing and so on? Um, from that perspective, interestingly, I, I, again, I'd sort of go back to what's happened since the financial crisis. It has become so complex now to onboard customers and to get customers set up that most customers now, you know, if they're happy, are probably very reluctant to leave. I mean, it used to be, you could hire someone who had relationships, you'd come over and all the clients would come with them and they'd all be onboarded. It's real work now to get onboarded. I mean, you have to provide all sorts of documentation and you know, for the client, I mean, why is he gonna do all this work, right? I mean, you know, unless he's been kicked out, as I said, or he's unhappy with where he's at. So I think clients have become more institutionalized than ever before. You know, they sort of become institutionalized at their firm. Um, and I think clients are also very sensitive now, more than before, as to who their firm is. You know, before Bear Stearns and Lehman's, um, you know, people would trade with anyone, really, particularly if you're just doing execution with them. I think now there's generally a standard that unless you have a minimum amount of capital, I think we get, a, I, I think because we public, it gives us even a better uh, kind of view f- for our customers. Um, you know, they just don't want to deal with you. So this is, this is you know, I, I would say the general theme is lots of consolidation driven by regulation, greater capital requirements driven by regulation, and us wanting to own some of that valuable real estate in the core market structure rather than just being a broker. So that's how we believe we've created something that has a moat and ultimately should have a franchise value, I would say. I think investors often think of regulation as a negative thing, but in reality, if you're an incumbent, 
regulation can actually benefit you because it either prevents other people from coming in or it you know allows you know the the, the winners to, to continue to win. So I'd love to hear a little more, and I don't think I ever hear investors ask ask management teams about this, but you know I think it's really important to be well regarded by your regulated you know, your, this, you know who are part of your stakeholder group. So I'm interested. You, you're regulated by so many different entities around yep. the world. What is your approach to being a good actor in the industry and developing a constructive relationship with the regulators? Well, uh, I, I just mentioned a little incident that happened with us in the middle of Dodd Frank. So we're going through this wrenching process with Dodd Frank, where you know parts of our business were unregulated, and suddenly we had 800 new regulations we had to comply with, and. And, and it was a big hill to climb and it was a massive change in, in sort of culture and approach, particularly for the FC Stone guys. And I remember everyone just being very miserable around the whole process. And, and on top of it, customers didn't know what they could do. So volumes were drying up. We weren't making much money. And, and you know, we had a real almost morale issue at, at the firm. And, you know, a lot of people were hoping, well, let's just wait till the you know, to, until we have an election and may, maybe the administration will change and maybe they'll roll this all back and, you know, maybe we should just ignore it. And, and a lot of our other, you know, competitors basically said, well, we're just going to get out of those businesses, right? The businesses that have now become regulated, it's just too complicated. So we'll just narrow our product focus and do one thing. And then we sort of had an epiphany sort of as, as, as a team and we said, okay, this is the way the world is now. If this is the way the world is, let's get really good at this stuff. Because if we have to deal with it, let's just take it head on and let's become like the best we can be at regulation. Because if we do that, it's going to be a competitive advantage. And I think that was the mindset change that we went through. So we have taken the view and we constantly talk about how regulation has driven our firm to greater things, right? How it's driven our customer acquisition, how it's driven our revenue, all fundamentally has come from regulation because, you know, a lot of people have just not done it well. So they end up getting fined and they end up with problems on that side or they've narrowed their focus and they've just said, screw it. You know, we're not going to do this. So we are just going to reduce our offering to clients. And of course that doesn't help you with client acquisition, right? So I think our view was, you know, we are in the regulation business we should be really good at this. And, you know, we want to be the guys who step out and are compliant as quickly as we can with the new regs. And we've just gone through a massive wrenching change, almost sort of the equivalent of Dodd-Frank in Europe with, um, you know, all the changes there. And we were one of the first of our peer group who actually dealt with Brexit, who dealt with some of the changes over there. And so many of them just put their heads in the sand and just hope it's not going to happen. Right. Or, well, if it, if it does happen, we'll just walk away from those clients. So we'll just walk away from that business. So so I think we've taken, I think, a pretty proactive approach to it is what it is. We just got to get good at it. And, you know, we want to run a good business and we want to make sure we're always doing the right thing. And, you know, it starts with sort of tone at the top. It starts with how you deal with your customers, how you view your customers and, and, you know, being compliant and ethical. And, you know, I think we've always prided ourselves on doing all of those things right. So honestly, I think if you, <laughs> if you don't take regulation seriously, if you don't become good at it, and if you don't try and excel by doing the right thing, you just shouldn't be in this industry, frankly. I mean, simple as that. So we've talked a lot about how 
the financial crisis and the FC Stone deal have really been an accelerant for this company. And, and when the FC Stone deal closed in the fall of 2009, the stock was around $16. It's over 60 now. What do you think, you know, we've talked a lot about what you've done, but, uh, you know, anything else that key elements of that success that you could highlight, whether maybe talking about your, you know, for future or further acquisitions, maybe just talk a little more about what, what do you think has been able to um, help propel you guys so much over that 10 year period? Well, I think certainly the, the environment, as we've discussed a lot so far, has been a key help, but you know, it's not just the environment, it's how we reacted to the environment, I think, is is really what's helped us, right? By taking on those challenges head on, put ourselves in a in a in a, a strong position to take on clients and grow. Um, we were willing to look at acquisitions. I mean, acquisitions is not a strategy per se for us. I mean, you know, we we will look at acquisitions opportunistically, and you know, if it's a if the buy gets us faster with less money than the build, then we will always look at that. Um, but I think we've now reached a really interesting point. I mean, just in the last two years, we have 50% more revenue, 50% more capital and 50% more clients than 18 months ago. So, you know, part of that was the gain transaction and, and, and sort of the impact of COVID. And I think at the same time, we've sort of built this incredible infrastructure which in my view is sort of unmatched other than the bulge bracket banks. And I think we have pretty low penetration of our addressable market. So, you know, I think everyone's pretty excited about the trajectory going forward. Um, and I don't think we need acquisitions and we certainly never plan for acquisitions. And our challenge now is, and, and we've spent a lot of money over the last 10 years on technology, honestly, probably with little, visible benefit at this point because what we've done is put a lot of the foundational work in place on the technology side and we're now starting to see a real cadence of delivery and i think if we can sort of follow that progression that our payments business went through where we can leverage technology leverage the infrastructure we've built which we think is sort of valuable real estate leverage the critical mass and the fact we have a unique offering you know, that's really what's going to propel us going forward. And, you know, I think there's a lot of optimism in the firm that we're in the right place and um, we've got, you know, the right products and we're on the right kind of trajectory to to leverage that. But, you know, nothing goes in a straight line and, you know, the markets at the moment are pretty frothy and, you know, they won't stay that way. But I think if you look at this in five years' time, if we do our jobs right and we capture the opportunity, I think we'll be a much bigger bigger firm than we are now. And given that, um, my guess is you feel to some degree that there are some aspects of your business that are not quite appreciated the way you think they should be. Uh, you mentioned the payments business. You mentioned you know the, the power of the clearing business. But what do you think? Where do you think people looking at StoneX as a whole may be misunderstanding or underappreciating what you have to offer and 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 you know and what kind of company you've built? Um, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I guess the, the thing that's a little bit frustrating now is, you know, with this boom in, in SPACs and, and you know, I, and I acknowledge that these SPAC valuations may be fleeting, but if you look at some of the payment companies I mentioned that I don't think have the same infrastructure that we have and don't make the same money we have, 
and you look at what value the market's putting on those. And then you look at our clearing business and one of our competitors, Apex, um, is in the middle of a SPAC, you know, at $4 billion. And then you look at our institutional business and, you know, which looks like some other companies out there that have SPAC. And if you sort of add those all up <laughs> you know, and you look at our market cap, it's like, you know, it's really hard to make any sense of that. Um, but I would say looking at our firm and, and, you know, it's not something we particularly worry about. I, I would say, you know, I don't think people truly understand the power of compounding. And, you know, I think they always look at us through a pretty short term lens and they look at our returns and they sort of yeah, like it or don't like it. But if you look at us over, you know, it's nearly 20 years, 18 years now since we started, we up 100x on every operational financial metric you can name. Our share price is up 100x, our revenue is up 100x, and our capital is up 100x. We've compounded at close to 30% annually for 18 years. And that's very powerful. And I don't think people really look at that long-term story. So, you know, we put it out there and we talk about it a lot, but, you know, I think everyone's sort of short-term, right? They, they look at Tesla's gone up X or look at Microsoft or this and that. And, you know, it's really hard to compete with those short-term stories. But, you know, I don't think people sort of look at our long-term track record. So that's one thing. I don't think people really understand the the power of what we built and how hard it is to replicate that. Um, I, I think, you know, that is something that I don't think people really can get their heads around. Um, and, you know, I would say if we do our jobs right and we keep compounding and we keep moving, you know, all of the numbers in the right direction and we can show people how all these various capabilities create a financial ecosystem for clients that's unmatched, that's when we will get a franchise type valuation, which I don't think we have at the moment. I mean, Goldman Sachs is a franchise. JP Morgan is a franchise. We're not a franchise. And I think, you know, at some point, people will start to recognize a franchise value. And that obviously changes how clients think about you. It changes how employees view you and it changes how investors think about you, right? So, um, but I wouldn't do anything different. Um, you know, our view is we're here for the long term. Uh, we've seen the power of compounding. I mean, you mentioned sort of how stock's grown. Um, and we've just got to keep doing what we're doing. And, you know, more importantly, we've got to build a great business. I don't think you should worry about the stock price. I think you should build a great business. I think you should make sure you take care of your customers. And you should build a business that is built for the long term and built for greatness and built in the right way. And if you do all of those things well and you execute well, all of the other issues become pretty irrelevant, I think. Right. Well, for a podcast called Compounders, I can't imagine a more perfect uh, <laughs> ending to the conversation. Um, I mean, you guys have enjoyed so much success um, and we really appreciated hearing that story and, and learning about that journey. So, Sean, thanks so much for the time. Um, this has been incredible. Well, thanks for your interest. We appreciate it. And as you can tell, we all, and you've only spoken to me, but the entire team at Stonex is pretty passionate about what we do. So we love talking about our business. But thank you. Thanks, Sean. That's it for our show today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We recognize that you have a lot of different podcast choices, and we appreciate you spending the time with us. We are continually working to make the show better 
and we would love your feedback. The more candid and honest, the better. And if you have any suggestions for public company CEOs you would like to see on the podcast, please let us know. And of course, warm intros are always appreciated. Please feel free to email us at podcast at covestreetcapital.com with your comments or suggestions. Thanks again, and stay tuned for the next episode of Compounders, Anatomy of a Multibacker.